0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello folks, Mark's away this week, and I'm back. Hello! Today we're going to talk about the return of Uluru to its traditional owners and the Right to Know campaign and general secrecy stuff and how a Bill of Rights might reshape the way we sort of think about transparency and secrecy in this country. Then we're going to talk about rent-seeking and the way it sort of leads to empire-building, the bureaucracy and our inability to sort of effectively deal with drought and water. That's all on today's Democracy Sausage. Well, bang-a-gong, we are on. Welcome back, everyone, to Democracy Sausage. And it's also a welcome back to me. I'm I'm arrogant enough to welcome myself back. I have three wonderful guests this week. I have Professor Quinton Grafton from the Crawford School of Public Policy. Hello.
2: Hello. Very happy to be here.
1: Yes, and welcome back. Uh, I have Professor Zoe Robinson from the School of Politics and International Relations, who's just down the corridor from me. Hello, Zoe. Hello, Maria. And I have James Mortensen, a PhD scholar at the National Security College Welcome back to the show, James.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Um, Uluru has now been closed to climbers and this is a really big and important event and there were celebrations at the Rock um, last night. Um, How should we understand this event in contemporary Australian politics and history?
3: I think it's an extremely significant event. I'm married to an Indigenous man. I have an Indigenous daughter and it, it was a really big event for both of them. It signifies a real shift, I think, in public thinking and public culture towards the Indigenous people in Australia, and I, I think it can be really a turning moment for for Indigenous rights, Indigenous culture in Australia. What happens next, of course, is open, but at least it at least lays a foundation.
2: Well, there's that great song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect. Mm. And it's also about listening, isn't it? So, you know, we've got listening to the heart in terms of the Uluru Declaration, And, of course, listening to the, to the traditional owners have been telling us that they don't want people climbing on Uluru. So I'm glad that people have listened. I'm glad the government has listened. And I'm glad that uh, it has been closed. That's the right thing to do. And uh, I'm glad we've done it.
0: I only hope, I suppose, in the future that a sacred site doesn't have to stick 400 metres out of the ground for us to... Stop trampling all over it. Yeah, space.
1: Excellent point, indeed. Indeed, the other sort of big issue this week has been uh, around the press's campaign, uh, your right to know. Uh, and it's sort of been in the context of a number of sort of security issues that have cropped up this week around uh, the uh, National Intelligence Security Committee, whose name, precise name, I can't quite recall, uh, which has rejected a government um, bill, which is quite a significant thing for this committee to do. Like it is a legislative committee, which means it is government dominated. And it is an important and prestigious committee as committees go in this country. Not as powerful as US committees, um, uh, but you know, th- basically telling uh, the government that it needs to go back to the drawing board. Uh, James, uh, you know, do you want to sort of um, walk us through a little bit about what the what the sort of issues around some of this security legislation were about?
0: My probably imperfect appreciation of the situation is that it's quite similar as it has been. I mean, it's a perennial problem um, that the government's f- uh, found it as well is willing to now accept that it's in um, with this sort of legislation that is um, extremely broad definitions, you know, extremely loose terminology, very vague in, in what it's actually trying to achieve. And if I may, I suppose I'd drag us back actually all the way to 2001 in the sense that the legislation, the national security legislation that we've rolled out, and Australia has been prodigious in the amount of national security legislation it has rolled out since September 11.
1: It's something like 70 bills. I think. Yeah,
0: it's, it's much higher than, than comparable in than the UK, US. Um, but a lot of it has to do with counterterrorism. Right? And in those bills, you still sort of see these broad sorts of legislative powers um, but also, those who appreciate these laws will be very quick to tell you that we don't utilize them very much. So we have a lot of these bills and uh, there's a lot of a lot of these bills passed, but um it's not like you know people are getting you know strip search in the street or anything they're being used responsibly, et cetera, et cetera i think and this is speculation on my part, but i I think the government has taken that sort of thinking into this new space essentially into issues of... Um, information uh, foreign influence foreign interference and now um, whistleblowing and that sort of thing yeah That's, to, to remind sort of
1: listeners this 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 bill specifically was about um, setting up a facial recognition database um, and so and and it was you know called the hub and the idea was that uh, law enforcement agencies but also corporations even small businesses could apply to the hub and um, essentially get you to identify your you know, whoever you want to identify, right? And it wouldn't just be licences or passports, it would be like a phishing licence or a proof of age card or, you know, any any form of identification. Um, and some of the problems with this bill was that there's simply no limits on the numbers of requests that could be made, no privacy provisions, any of these kinds of things.
0: The point I'm trying to get out, I suppose, is is, is the government has, has thus far with national security legislation since 2001 relied on quite a lot of goodwill on the part of the practitioner. And getting to the pointy end of the stick, we're getting to these more nebulous issues that that simply doesn't cut it. And I think um, the, the um, parliamentary joint committee, the independent national security legislative monitor, um, these these bodies have identified that, and they're pushing back.
1: I mean, I think what was kind of interesting was that um, the sort of uh, the way Peter Dutton uh, used um, labour and particularly Mark Dreyfus, as a way to attack the committee, even though the committee is chaired by obviously a Liberal Party member and is headed up by, uh, you know, and is a prominent m- member of that is um, the rather hawkish Andrew Hastie. Um, and so this is, this is for me, as someone who studies parliament, quite kind of interesting as this sort of example of the executive and the judiciary. Like it's it's actually in, in it, like one of those rare instances where parliament seems to really be doing its job, even when the incentive structure is actually set up for the government to kind of get its own own way. Um, And these issues that it raises like really kind of link up to this sort of broader campaign that's being run by the media around your right to know, the fact that it's simply um, currently increasingly difficult for media organizations to report on information that we should know, know. and and a key example of that is some of that awful footage uh, that was taken secretly by um, you know the children of people in aged care homes. Do we think this is going to be a problem for the government, or do Australians just not care?
2: Well, I think Australians do care, and I think Australians are concerned. Of course, the the idea of a parliamentary democracy is you vote a government in, and if they have a majority, which this government does, they're able to pass legislation and that legislation can then end up doing things that are not necessarily in the national or public interest. So let me just be clear what I'm talking about here. So it's it's perfectly acceptable to have legislation to look after a national security. I'm not opposed to that at all, but I think legislation that goes too far, and I'm not an expert on this, but certainly from the people who are, indicate that this legislation does go too far, and I think that's the key point, uh, then we need to not have that legislation. And if the minister responsible continues to decline that advice and implement that legislation against the advice of experts, I'm not one of them, then that would lead to me to question what's going on here. Uh, Are the ministers acting in the national interest or are they acting in another sort of way for another agenda? Those are the questions that I would say that need to be asked.
1: Um, So Zoe, you've spent a lot of time in the US. Um, There's a very different discussion around free speech in the US to Australia. I mean, um, what are your observations having come back after a long time away about how we talk about freedom of the press and the right to free speech in this country?
3: So what, what I find really interesting is the the seemingly assumption of a many ordinary Australians is what we have, free speech and freedom of the press, and we don't. Australia is the only Western country without a Bill of Rights would that be a universal panacea for this issue? No, absolutely not. That we in in Australia the justices of the High Court and of the Federal Court are appointed by pure executive discretion, so the government of the day appoints the justices, presumably they're chosen on a variety, for a variety of reasons, merit but also ideological interests. So we're relying on another group of elites to interpret something that would would then constitutionalize an issue if you had a constitutional bill of rights for example. But in terms of the actual issues of free speech here versus the United States, one, we don't have free speech. Two, there's significant limitations on ability to criticise public officials in Australia that just doesn't exist in the United States or in other Western countries as well. Um, So in the United States, the First Amendment freedom of speech protects um, criticism of public officials. And defamation will only be successful if the plaintiff can show the person criticizing the speech can show actual malice. And in this country, we don't, we don't have that defense. We don't have a public interest test. We don't have that actual malice standard. And so the press is really chilled from publishing a lot of information about public officials and also national security that just doesn't exist in the same way in other countries. And so I think that has a really significant chilling effect and it's something that really should be addressed, whether that's through a Bill of Rights or through some other mechanism.
1: Right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, that's quite kind of fascinating because, sort of, what James was sort of saying before about the fact that um, you know Australia seems to have more of these um, laws than other other countries. Um, you know, um, you know, James, do you know kind of why that that has been the case, or um, is there something particular about um, Australian laws uh, that is sort of different from other places?
0: Um- I mean, I can only speculate and this is def- definitely in the realm of opinion, but I feel, uh, you know, we're the lucky country um, and lucky in, in the way that we were constituted and the circumstances under which and the people who got to constitute. And I think they took a lot of things for granted. I think that's becoming obvious now, certainly in regards to free speech, freedom of the press, that sort of thing. Um, you know, our constitution is a very much a um, she'll be right constitution. It's very much a matter of, you know, you know, this is how the thing should run when everything's perfect and, and, and all the wheels are turning. Uh, and we that sort of thinking, I suppose, is the link that I'd choose to pull on, if only to say then, you know, after 2001, you know, people said, all right, well, look, you know, the world's a dangerous place. You know, we're scared of X, Y, and Z. We need to legislate against it. Um, you know, let's assume that everyone's going to do their job. Um, and it's now – and I'd actually link it. Quentin, to to something that you said, and I appreciate that I'm not the one asking the questions, but if I could ask a question, sort of suggesting that, you know, national security, talking about issues in national security and and saying if the minister's willing to ignore best advice and that sort of stuff. When you were saying that, I was wondering, uh, especially given your backgrounds in water, if I'm I'm correct, yeah? Yes, I do have a background in water. Would you say that the government consistently issues legislation in line with the best advice of experts in regards to water and if the answer is no
1: that's a thesis in itself <laughs> why would why would
0: national security be any different i suppose uh,
2: look i think the the, 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 the broad response to that question james is that uh, there are special interests and those special interests have privileged access And those special interests are able to get through their perspectives, their views, their interests uh, in terms of legislation and indeed beyond that in terms of a whole range of decision making. That applies to water, and I'm happy to talk about that in the context of, <laughs> oh, of what yeah. that what that means. But it's not just in water. You know, we have we have decisions made in terms of building submarines that won't be available to the twenty thirties that are going to cost more than fifty billion dollars. We have decisions in the context and this is not just an Australian government, federal government. We have decisions that are be made in terms of oversight, in terms of the construction of apartment buildings. We've had decisions made that didn't seem to be in the public interest in in the terms of the financial industry. I mean, you just go on and on and on. So, the only reasonable way of explaining those decisions is that those decisions have been made to benefit a few, typically, but not always, but typically at the expense of the many. And that's how I would describe it. And in economics, we have a framework for understanding that. It's called rent-seeking behavior. So the people who are outside of government and have influence, power, money, whatever you want to call it, they are able to influence decision making. And on the other side, that's the that's the demand for those sorts of decisions. And the supply is what's called regulatory capture. Okay. So uh, George Stigler received the Nobel Prize in economics for actually discussing that issue. And it's actually right wing if you want to use those terms and uh, sort of uh, market uh, uh, type of economic thinking. But that's the thinking they had, that that the regulatory capture meant that, that decision makers there were captured by special interests. Now, that's not just unique to Australia. It exists in other countries. But the fact that we are the lucky country, the fact that we've had 28 years of unbroken economic growth, at least in terms of GDP growth, then that Favors particular interests to stay in place like barnacles on a on a ship <laughs> they can hang there and then be able to uh, get their voices across and if they get their voices across that benefits them at the expense of the many, then they will be looking after their own interests so I, th-
0: I think that with other industries or other arenas such as water you know we, we can we identify whether or not things happen, especially in regards to water, whether we, ad- we can maybe identify the rent seekers but don't necessarily do much about it. But I think that there's an overt assumption throughout Australia, all levels of Australia, that national security stands beyond the rent-seeking behaviour. I might lose a lot of friends by suggesting that that's not the case.
1: Yeah, and bureaucratic that, And ultimately, of course,
0: it's not necessarily in a negative way but it is in the government's best interest to have as much power as it can in order to do the job that we presumably ascribe to it. So the rent-seekers in this case obviously being the government. Um, And that works fine when you are viewing yourself as a lucky country, but when you think you're under the thumb, I don't think that's going to work.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think that it's also important to consider that the kind of rent-seeking behaviour and the capture of special interests traverses beyond basic economic things like – Uh, water being the example and goes to national security, colors across to religion, religious interest groups and religious capture of of democratic decision-making is fairly well studied in other countries. It exists here as well, presumably. So I I think it's really necessary to to recognize these things and see the impact that it's having on a national security policy.
1: I mean, I do wonder whether or not if Australia was to have even a debate about like a proper debate about having a Bill of Rights, as whether or not this might upset the current way we are discussing uh, some of these issues, simply for the fact that, you know, governments over time, and and this government in particular, has been really resistant to transparency, transparency across multiple fields, you know, whether it's water, whether or not it's national security, whether or not it's what's going on in aged care, um, you know, or, you know, the euphemism of on-water matters, um, the fact that Scott Morrison doesn't like to answer questions, but, he you know, sort of says things like, well, that's just Gossip, or you know, that's the Canberra bubble. Um, and I, I do wonder rather whether or not, like, a Bill of Rights might give us uh, the language in which to sort of push back against some of this kind of um, discourse. Uh, yeah, I strongly agree with
3: that. Um, I, as somebody who undertook my first studies, my first law degree, and all my undergraduate studies in Australia, and then moved to the United States for for over a decade two different cultures with respect to how you deal with rights. I think one of the biggest benefits of having a Bill of Rights and a, and a rights culture is the there's a, really a light shone on the issues in a really public way. So if people have the chance to be able to bring a claim before a public forum, before the court, and that claim is then heard in a public forum, the government has to stand up and justify the reasons for decision or justify why they're imposing on the freedom of press, for example, or free speech more generally, then that enables ordinary citizens to see how that how, how a sausage is made, really. You can really see the process of decision-making and there's some added layer of transparency that, that is highlighted in a way that I think is not happening in Australia right now.
0: Look, I really like the message. I think it's important. You know, the, the fourth estate's really – Thomas Jefferson, I think. You know, uh, there's no greater national security than a free press. Um, for a liberal democracy, it's it's fundamental. But if the media are there to be the vanguards of the public interest, it's their responsibility to do so and it's their job, right? And the government is now preventing them from doing that job. And they've now stepped up and said, you know, we're under we're under threat. Uh, and if the media dies, democracy dies as well. Okay, my problem comes, I suppose, when I consider. I mean, I can't remember all of the you know TV stations, newspapers coming together, and or even half of them, even half of them coming together and saying, you know, on this day, in this in this context, this is a matter of the public interest. So not the fact that the world is on fire, you know, that we're counting down the climate clock to 2050, not the fact that Walgett still doesn't have drinking water a year after running out, not the fact that a woman's more likely to get murdered by an inverted commas loved one than hit by a car or stung by a bee or eaten by a shark. You know, on International Women's Day, we don't say Australia is a lucky country except if, you know, you're a woman and you're upset with your partner. Like, we've not stepped up then. So stepping up now and saying, look, the public interest is under threat makes me think either I'm wrong about all of these issues being fundamentally important to Australia and actually everything's fine or the media, and not to blame the media, not to blame the journalists, not even to blame the industry, but we are in a situation in which proclaiming the public interest, it has to come knocking on your door before you will take the stand. If the vanguards of the public interest are in a scenario when they have to, Wait for the stormtroopers to to knock on the door. I think our capacity to discuss these issues, our capacity for our institutions to bring them to light, is such that having a debate about a bill of rights, among a lot of other things, um, is fundamentally problematic. And I think you know, not to be the doomsayer, I suppose, but we need to.
1: I I guess it does highlight the sort of uh, complex relationship that journalists have with the subjects that they. Report on, right? Yeah. Um, and this goes to the idea of authorized leaks. Um, and also, like, you know, m- most Australians might not really understand this, but, you know, the, the proximity of the press gallery. Two journal, uh, two politicians is actually, once again, a rather unique Australian phenomena, (laughs) right? In most other countries, um, you know, the press is not embedded in the same building. And so the kinds of relationships that develop between, uh, the press and, um, and actors, political actors, um, is sort of more closer and more kind of intimate as as a result of that, the Australian media is nowhere near as competitive as, say, like the viciousness of Fleet Street or, uh, you know, the Washington Press Pack because there are fewer um, actors. And and there can be a kind of sort of like um, consensus that forms sort of within the gallery as well. So there's, there are all of these kinds of, you know, challenges. And I mean, ultimately... And this is one of the things I found kind of interesting about some of the discussions being led by people like Catherine Murphy, people who were sort of pushing this kind of agenda within the media about the the collective action problem, right? Which is they're kind of they're all competing against each other, but comp- competition isn't fierce enough. And so you know they ask a question, the minister doesn't answer it, and so you know, but then the next journalist doesn't ask the same question. They ask the question that they want to ask for their own newspaper, for their own newspaper editors, and so. It is kind of difficult for um, uh, journalists um, because they're not really a team, and yet they, um, you know, they, they have to sort of fulfil this kind of of function. Um, so I think it is, yeah. I think we should. I don't know. Maybe we should cut them some more slack. I don't. I mean,
0: know. I'm definitely don't. Please don't get me not, wrong. That I'm not going after anyone in particular. I mean, it's it's a society wide issue. Um, but at least in this particular, in this little, you know. Grain of truth that's been uncovered, you know, when we pick it up, I think there's there's something a little bit that needs – it betrays a much – bigger problem, you know, and uh, at the very, uh, Zoe, my impression, say, is that um, the freedom of political expression in the US Constitution is found in the same place that uh, also safeguards the freedom of the press, right? So, so the same... First
3: Amendment protects freedom of press and freedom of speech, but freedom of speech has been interpreted so broadly that it basically, it swallows up the freedom of press. And yep. so, the freedom of press hasn't been given independent legs for a number of decades. Okay. There was a debate between two of the justices in the Citizens United case, a famous case that gave court corporations are right to free speech yep. but they really are speeches considered to cover press yeah
0: right so but and, and i feel though that it's interesting from our point of view then when and this is really i mean i listed you know climate hiring
2: for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: And a bunch of other issues that I still think are generally in the national interest, um, but In regards to even recent events, when you've got people like Richard Boyle on 160 something years for telling the truth, essentially, um, or the high court, you know, whose hand is essentially forced, I appreciate, but the high court saying that no, you know, Australians do not have an individual right to freedom of political expression. And more to the point, the government can control 16% of the population, every public servant in the land to not speak politically. That's like not coming to that fight. With the same sort of gusto, I think, like, look, maybe maybe it's just a matter of in the future. You know, if if the right to know, maybe the right to know really campaign should have legs, it should continue, but it should expand beyond its own doorstep. Well,
2: you know, the price, the price of democracy is eternal vigilance. And
0: mm-hmm. so if
2: you're saying that we need to be vigilant about a whole range of issues in addition to the right to know, then I absolutely agree with you, James. It's not just one or two issues, it's across the board. We as voters, we as Australians, need to be aware of what's going on. That's why the right to know is important as as a free press. But we also not only need to have the information available, we actually have to act on that information.
3: But also have the capacity to act on that information. And I think that's probably where the, where the Bill of Rights campaigners would come in and say, that would give us the lever that we need in order to act on the on, on our need to have this kind of transparency around this whole range of issues. But I think what was interesting for me about your comment was I'm wondering whether you're sceptical about the the journalists in terms of self-interest in the right-to-know campaign or the corporations, right? Is there something that's kind of behind this? Because I find it really yeah. interesting that we have with the media ownership issues in Australia with predominantly two two large corporations owning, owning the large share of the free press in Australia and they're perpetuating this right-to-know campaign you know, the skeptic in me wonders what what might be going on behind the scenes here when you have two very large special interests pushing for something like this.
0: So, I mean, I I would look at it from the other, or I have looked at it from the other perspective, in the sense of you know going going from the other direction. Um, let's say, I mean, climate's the big one, right? So, I think something seventy five percent of Australians under the age of fifty five believing that climate change is is a massive problem. I mean, I think we're about, about sixty something percent of the population um you know, all of the experts it's It's a pretty much a done deal, but of course, some mastheads are happy to push that, others aren't right from an editorial point of view, from an institutional point of view. So when we ask well why why is it why is it only now that they've all come together? well, it's probably the only thing they agree on. Yeah, now, I think that's exactly right. right. And now that, that in itself, again, I, I, I plenty of slack cut, but at the same time for, for half of them that don't have a problem with that, you know, sure, band together. We, we can still do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to, you know, whether it's the, the journalists, the, 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 the number of journalists, the, the, the journalists that I've spoken to in the last week or two, you know, yeah, they're very quick to say, look, it's not like we're doing our best. Which I'm sure – and I think everyone is doing their best. That's not even to say that the institutions, that the, the corporations behind it don't have the best intentions. You know, in this particular issue, I'm sure they've come to the table with the best intentions.
1: All right. Let's take a break there.
3: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: All right, let's move, let's shift gears. And, uh, Quinton, I have a, a question from a listener from, uh, from Dam Builder. So I think you can tell where this question's going to go. Um, why does Australia have a phobia towards dams?
2: Well, actually, we don't have a phobia towards dams. We're actually building lots of dams at the moment or planning to build them. So, so uh, I think, uh, dam, if I can call you that dam, that, uh, that we are actually going ahead and going to build a a bunch of dams and uh, billions of dollars have been allocated to that purpose in the last few months. I think dam also makes the point that if we had all the dams in the northern part of Australia that we currently have in the southern part of Australia, then we wouldn't have all these water problems. But actually, dam, we're actually (laughs) having major water problems in the southern part of Australia, at least in the eastern part of Australia. And that has happened even though we have a whole bunch of dams. So dams are are good in the sense that if you put them in the right place and they fill up and they allow us to store water so we can use them at, uh, at times when the water might be scarce, But we've essentially built all the real dams that are possible in the context of large dams in southern Australia. There really isn't much more to build in the sense that if you build them in other locations, they may never fall up. So so that's the problem we've got. And in the north, there's a whole set of issues about dam building. First of all, there's the traditional owners and whether they agree with that or not. There's the issue of very high rates of evaporation. So you build a dam, you store the water and you get a lot of evaporation. There's the issue that those rivers actually provide a whole bunch of recharge to groundwater. And if you don't have the water flowing at the regular times, then you won't get the recharge. There's the issue about who's paying for the dams. So uh, the proposals are typically that the government would pay for the dams or most of the dam cost. But we know from the north itself, in terms of the Ord River and the Lake Argyle, that. Uh, returned, uh, you know, a a loss of 83 cents for every dollar spent. So that's the source of sorts of payouts we get on public benefits associated with dam building. And I don't think that's a good use of taxpayers' dollars. So hopefully that answers your question, Dan.
1: (laughs) I guess what's really interesting about um, all the discussion around drought and drought politics is that it's, it's the drought has really now hit a political high pitch um, of a level that I don't remember from, uh, from until from the last drought. Right? What seems to strike me about uh, drought politics and drought policy is that it's it's always quite knee jerk and quite kind of crisis uh, driven. But I mean, this seems kind of perverse to me because, like, we know that a drought will come again. Like, it's the land of droughts and flooding plains. Um, so, um, so Quinton, um, you know. Is there anything different that's happening this time or are we just sort of seeing this sort of same cycle of water politics, drought politics, uh, short-term handouts to, to to farmers who are at the sort of bottom end of the sort of farm management spectrum? Um, yeah. What's your take on it?
2: Well, it's sad to say it's actually worse than the last time. So the last time was the millennium drought that ended in 2010. And during the millennium drought, governments got together and they signed up to the National Water Initiative, a whole set of principles that uh, pretty much were were good principles that we needed to, to act on. By the way, those principles are not being acted on in 2019 by a number of governments, including the Australian government. And we also had in 2007, Prime Minister John Howard making an announcement to have a national plan for water security, which included billions of dollars to do a number of different things. So there was actually a an activity and a set of actions in the last drought that was looking forward in terms of how can we come up with different ways of dealing with these problems. In today's drought, the drought that began in 2017 in in southeastern Australia, we're not thinking about new solutions or putting new options on the table. We're actually going back not to the millennium drought. We're going back to the 1980s or even further back than that. And so the solution that's being proposed by state governments, at least the New South Wales government and the Australian government, is to build dams and water infrastructure. And I made it very clear (laughs) that this doesn't solve the problem. So so let's just go through the logic of it, okay? So we're in in October 2019, November 2019. And what we're going to end up with is dams that are going to be constructed that will take two, three or four years Those dams will not fill with the current drought. So they don't solve in any way the current drought. So what's happening is that politicians are spending a lot of money and I just make it clear here, it's taxpayers' dollars. So so every dollar they spend means they have to take it from somebody else or they don't spend it on new start allowance increase or whatever it is. There's always costs associated with this. It's not free money. And so then they can show their compassion by providing – dam building or or additional funds for people who are really doing it tough. But they're not solutions. They're just pretense. They're make-believe narratives to create this idea that somehow they're doing something. So let's go back a step. Let's look at the principles of the National Water Initiative. Let's actually implement them. Let's think about alternatives. Managed aquifer recharge. So you put the water and you put it underground so there's less evaporation. Let's use Proper water pricing so that uh, prices go up as the dams go down, at least for communities. Let, let's have a, a range of options in terms of water use and water recycling. Um, let, let's think about the overallocations allocations and, and the overuse of the water in the context of the Murray Darling Basin. All now, of these how much are basic has stuff.
1: Served? The the uh, you know crisis in the Murray Darling Basin. How much is that impacting the severity of this drought, or the capacity for farmers to be able to cope with with drought conditions? Like,
2: well, well, clearly we have a drought, and certainly dry land farmers are suffering some of the worst. In the context that they have the the, the probably the, the the least amount in terms of the buffers to be able to respond to it, to a drought. Irrigators are also suffering in the sense they're getting uh, lower allocations, in some cases, zero allocations. So across the board, there are farmers suffering, but it's not just farmers. There are people living in Walgut. There's people living in Wilcannia. They're not having access to water. The only water they get is coming off on the back of a truck in 10-litre cartons. And that water that they would normally be able to access, let's say, across uh, along the the Barwon Darling, that water was extracted as late as 2015 and 2016, you know, large amounts of water were extracted, not enough was left to allow the water to flow down, and to be able to be able to provide the necessary priority for communities. So it's not just a drought issue. I mean, politicians will keep on saying drought, 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 and drought. And I would say to them, no, it's a water emergency And a water emergency implies, in my view, that that we need to tell the truth and we need to act on the truth. And that truth is that we have mismanaged how we use our water. And if we've mismanaged it, we haven't planned and done the necessary things that we should have done, then that itself has caused this water emergency. So it's not about blaming people. It's about saying, okay, recognize the truth. Now let's act on the truth. And acting on the truth is not about building more dams (laughs) or pretending that sending out payments to people doing it tough is going to fix this problem because it's not going to fix the problem. So we in the driest inhabited continent of the world need to do better We're not doing what we need to do. We have the solutions. We have the options on the table. Let's actually do them.
1: I do kind of wonder, though, you know, how far this conversation can honestly progress whilst we – like the elephant in the room here seems to be climate change, you know. I mean the National Farmers Federation, I think it was the second sentence in their uh, sort of policy report thing to government, Um, you know, um, yeah – do, does anyone have any, any hope?
0: Oh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, look, it's it's bad news. And look, coming from the NSC, right, so we're we're, we're big on national security, right? um, you know, climate change is in the conversation, right? So the national security community is 100% in it, right? totally involved. I don't think there's a single, um, you know, a single interest group that comes through, you know, for, say, executive education or, or for anything like that that doesn't get the climate change talk and everyone responds to it really well, everyone's on board, um, but I've really, I'm sort of stuck on what you've been saying, Quentin, in, in, and please feel free to fact check me. But my impression was that, that, that the NWI, that the, the water initiative was rolled back about 2015 or, you know, essentially we, we, we turned our back on it around that time. I don't know, I remember resonating in my ears is, you know, people like Barnaby Joyce saying, um, you know, water is money stored watering is a bank, right? Uh, the way that we view water is, is as a commodity.
1: Or forests. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much everything,
0: right? You know, and I'd really like to see it treated as a national security issue as well, right? And and I think maybe I'm 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 here, I'm cheering for my own team here, but um, you know, national security has definitely spread its tentacles all over the place. Um, but this might be one where where we welcome it in the sense that you know the people of Volgat, I'm sure, would definitely tell you that there's, it's pretty hard to have any sort of security when you're not drink, yeah, you don't have drinking water, water, right? Um having that sort of view of the necessity of the infrastructure, that we're not here to um, create commodity, we're not here to create wealth or value, but we're here to safeguard a a way of life or safeguard, you know, our communities. Um, Seeing that happen, I feel like, yes, climate change is a big issue, um, but in the short term, I think we can still, we're still time to turn around, you know, to to do an about-face, hopefully. Um, and and at least change the way that we talk about things as opposed to waiting for reality to bite us on the ass, basically.
2: Look, climate change is an important issue for Australia. We will suffer, and we already are suffering from climate change. Certainly higher temperatures are contributing to higher rates of evaporation, which is contributing to the, the water emergency. But let's do some backpedaling here. <laughs> so it's the high rates of water extraction in the Murray Darling Basin is a much, much bigger issue than climate change. Okay, so just fact fact check on me on that, that it, it's absolutely the case. So we are extracting more than 50% of the the, the the stream flows. In some cases, it's 70%. Are you, are
1: you serious? Oh, I'm absolutely mm. serious.
2: Okay, so we'll have high rates of extraction. Those high rates of extraction totally dominate what's happening in the context of climate change. So so the point about it is it's a, it's a, it, there's a downside, there's an upside. The downside is we are extracting a lot of water. But the upside is we can actually do something about it. <laughs> we can't fix climate change, but we can certainly fix our levels of water extraction. I also want to highlight this. Get, we talked about the Bill of Rights, but, but you know we actually do have legislation in this country. We have a Water Act of 2007, amendments in 2008. We have individual Water Acts, like the 2000 Act in, in New South Wales. Those acts actually tell us to do certain things. So in the Water Act of New South Wales, guess who has first priority? It's actually communities. Towns have first priority. But tell that to the people of Volcania that they got first priority mm-hmm. because they didn't. The way the water sharing rules were implemented is that the upstream irrigators got that water and they did not get that water, yet that's what the act said they should have actually given the priority to communities. We have a Water Act of 2007 that gives priority to actually bringing flows back in for the environment. And although some of that has happened, we've gone backwards in all sorts of ways in terms of implementation. So it's not just about having a good act as much as it's nice to have a good act, it's about implementation, a way do we get failures in implementation? Why do we have failures? The standard explanation is it's ignorance. Oh, we just will sleep on the wheel. Actually, no. In the context of water, it's not the case. The information has been provided to the political leadership. It's been provided to the senior public servants of what's wrong. We even had a royal commission from South Australia that identified maladministration. We had a productivity commission that made a findings in January of this year. They were published highlighting a whole range of issues. We had an a Australian Academy of Science panel responding to the fish kills at Menendee Lakes and the Darling River. So there's a series of information and evidence about what's wrong and what can be done about it. And guess what we have right now? We have a whole bunch of dam building going on, and we have $1.5 billion allocated for subsidies for water irrigation infrastructure and that is not going to solve this problem in fact it sends us backwards so so it's not about evidence it's not about acts it's about implementation and we have to get to it's the a political n- problem correct
1: yes and it, it sounds like from what you're saying that uh, politicians and the national party in particular given they represent these regions overwhelmingly may need to rethink how and what they will say to the peoples in their communities about what is long-term and viable for some of these communities? Is that sort of what you're saying?
2: Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. So if, if you are in rural New South Wales and you have a water minister and a dry up minister who's saying that they're going to solve your problems or help you in terms of dam building and and uh, paying uh, uh, welfare payments to, to farmers, then, then you are being misled. So you need to ask the questions of your uh, MPs. Uh, what are you doing for me as in the context of the community? Uh, what are the decisions that you have made that have actually been contrary to the interests of the community? And what is the public interest and the national interest and the regional interest that is being ignored? Uh, and uh, as i said it's 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 not like we don't have the solutions <laughs> it's not like we ha- don't have the options and it's not like this is a surprise the fact that we've got a drought is certainly should not come as a surprise to anybody so so i think those questions need to be asked and uh, and hopefully uh, hopefully with those questions that there will ultimately be change but it's certainly not going to happen from from people uh, providing uh, uh, evidence uh, that itself is not going to make a difference here something else has to happen and people have to sort of get engaged and say, yes, we've got a water emergency. Yes, uh, our leadership has failed to deliver us the solutions and we need to have something better than what's going on right now. That's the only way I think this is going to change is sort of direct democracy in the context of recognizing there's an emergency, telling the truth, and then most importantly, acting on the truth.
3: Do you think that the, um, this is really a consequence of the shall we right culture that we, where we started out the program, right? This is a really – the country is really quite, yeah, it'll be fine. It's all right. She'll be right. And this is really a consequence of that. This seems to be a similar thing, which is the communities are saying, well, okay, this is what we're being told. And, okay, it'll be all right. Everyone's taking care of it rather than stepping up and, and taking care of things for themselves.
2: Well, I think there's a trust issue, isn't there? So you trust governments to, to make the decisions that ultimately will look after people. Mm. And I understand where this goes. OK, you know, you have politicians who have to look after their personal interests. I understand that. They have their own political interests. I also understand that. I get that. OK. But there's a three-legged stool. And the third leg of the stool is the national and the public interest and I think when that stool has that third leg doesn't seem to be <laughs> standing up so to speak then then I think people ultimately recognize it And but it takes time so I mean the fish kills in January okay, really went global in, in the context of understanding gee there's something going on here we already knew this and if we work in the water area but the, it became much more visible and then of course the next thing is yes there's a real problem then the next thing is what's going on about it and the traditional mantra has been, well, we're world's best practice, which is clearly not the case here in, in the Murray-Darling Basin or Australia. And then the next line is oh, well, if, it's not, if, if we're no longer world's best practice, then it must be just about the drought. So it, there's always somebody to blame. Blame the river, blame the drought or whatever. And then ultimately people, when they eventually see and there's tr- more trouble coming at sadly in the next few months, in, in our summer months here, uh, then, then they say that there's actually no... <laughs> no change, things are actually getting worse, Mm -hmm. then they'll start to question the the lines that they've been fed and say, well, now we've got to do something different. And that's what I'm saying. The options are already there. People need to grab those options and they need to uh, engage with their political leadership and say, these are the options we want to be considered, not the options that go back 40, 50 years uh, that clearly aren't going to deliver for us. I think we
1: definitely have to to watch this space and this issue will, will obviously keep... Uh, coming up as the drought rolls out. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for participating today and uh, I'll see you next week.
2: Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.
1: Bye.